First start out in jiu-jitsu, and it's a bit of a difficult one for you to answer, I think. Uh, it, it, when you're in the UK, there wasn't really like an official, it's not like now where you join a jiu-jitsu club and then you, you get started. So I'd come from like a, a, a Jeet Kune Do background in a way. So I remember, it must have been, I remember in 1991, I think, I went down to a, there was like a seminar of lots of different martial arts at, at Bob Breen's Academy in, uh, in London. So I think I was around 16 at the time and Rick Young was teaching some uh, Judo Niwaza there. So that was my kind of the first time I'd done any groundwork. I even remember now, he was just going from like a Kezagatami position in Judo, moving around the body. But I think Rick had, he'd had influences in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu from back then. So it wasn't, it was, you could class it as judo or Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He's basically just doing groundwork. Uh, so that was back in 1991. But obviously, I wasn't in a Brazilian jiu-jitsu club then. So that was my, kind of my first. Then I, that was my first exposure really to, to to groundwork. And then after that, it was just getting whatever, uh, basically whatever information you can. But because they didn't have YouTube and other things, it was a lot harder to find information. So I remember getting Neil Adams' old books. He had a, a book series on like uh, triangles and arm locks and stuff. We had the old Gracie videos. And then and he was just doing seminars. I think someone called Richard Bustillo came over maybe to Nottingham around the same time. And he did like a Shuto seminar. So he was doing like, obviously everything was connected to kind of MMA, even though it didn't exist then as a, as a, as a sport per se. Uh, so it was all about kind of getting, the, getting the clinch, getting takedowns and going to the ground and going from there. So I suppose you could say, but actual official Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is probably when I went over to, uh, or in Birmingham, when I went to the club that, uh, uh, Mauricio Gomez was running in Birmingham, which is the first kind of Gracie Baja. Birmingham, which was in about, I think I went there first in 1999. But obviously for the eight years in between, I was still doing groundwork regular, whether it was a judo club or whether it was training with like friends and training partners doing bits of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah. So did, did that affect your uh, Jeet Kune Do? It kind of went from that kind of um, seminar way. It was like all those different martial artists and you were just like, oh, I really want to learn this kind of stuff now. Yeah, I was, I was more interested in the, the like the more functional uh, martial arts that had more sparring in it, basically. So, uh, so then, so I was always interested in boxing and Thai boxing and anything that where there was, you know, where there was a, a sporting sparring aspect to it. Because then, for me, it always felt more realistic. If you could spar, at least then you know if something's working or not. So, uh, was it you got into martial arts because you just kind of a, you're naturally quite competitive, or did you care about self defense? I was playing table tennis one day in the sports center, and. And there was some traditional jiu-jitsu. And I'm sure I, I was probably 13. And I think I saw people like doing a flying kick over someone else. And it just looked quite cool. So uh, so that's the, and then when I got started in traditional jiu-jitsu when I was 13. And then through that, it was probably like the Bruce Lee, probably Enter the Dragon or something I'd seen. And that got me into Wing Chun. And from Wing Chun, I started to go into Jeet Kune Do, which was, you know, and then when I'd met Rick Young, I realized that, you know, he's an amazing martial artist. And I saw kind of the level he was at even back, you know, back then in 1991. And that pushed me. And then gradually I got pushed towards Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and it came, that became my focus. I thought you were going to say there for a minute when you discovered uh, self defense. I was playing table tennis and someone stole my bat. And I had to get it back. But now you might be one of the one of the earliest adopters then because we've spoke to, spoke to quite a lot of people in the UK now, haven't we? Yeah, we Anna just had brought, Mark Walder and then oh, yeah. Paul Bridges Paul as well. Bridges and, so, yeah. but I think they they were kind of like ninety three, ninety four UFC time. So yeah, you yeah. were even predating that back to ninety one. And we we speak to a lot of my members around students around like the point you made right at the very beginning, and I think we were rolling then, but there was no jiu-jitsu. Like it, it just didn't even exist. It wasn't uh-huh. anyone's radar at all. And what were those times like then? What, so you were trying to find the videos, you were trying to find the magazines, and 
how were you practicing? How were you getting your groundwork in? So, so basically, when I when I went to Bob Breen's in, I think it was two years running. I think it was. I, I don't know the exact years. It might have been ninety one, ninety two, but I'm, it'll be recorded somewhere. That and then uh, I met someone called Mike Gregory, uh, who is. I assume he's still teaching in somewhere uh, on the outskirts of Manchester. So then we that we started training together, and he'd got influences from some from catch wrestling. So in the 90s, Eric Paulson used to come over as well. I, I, he might even still come over now. So that was in the mid-90s. We'd have Eric Paulson coming over. And some of the Jeet Kune Do guys who would come over had also done some Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So we're getting bits of information from seminars, bits of stuff from cross-training with catch wrestlers. And I was going to, to judo as well that was near my house. And even then, the, the judo club... That I was going to in Middleton near my house. I had someone called Neil Eckersley training there, who was uh, who had who was kind of famous for for groundwork as well. So we're just we're getting bits from everywhere. We had the old like videos from Japan of all the shoot wrestling stuff in Japan, and then obviously once the UFC had come out, then you get that information as well. Uh, so then it's just putting all the pieces together. But we we're still training intelligently. We were, you know, but we didn't have a rule set to so back in. When we were rolling back in, say, 93, 94, we'd be, we'd be doing heel hooks. And there was no, like, rules of you could neck. We're just doing everything. You could, if you got a submission, you'd just be happy, whether it was a neck crank or a heel hook or whatever, you know. Tap, tap to tap, mate. You know what I mean when I say that here? But like, it's interesting you say about Eric Paulson because I've told this story before. My first ever seminar was in Aberdeen in 2002 with yeah. Eric Paulson, and he taught heel hooks on that day as well. Remember it clearly, and it's funny how it's all kind of come back around now, and that's the Vogue thing. But they, obviously, it's been around for forever, right? Yeah, yeah. I can't even remember when uh, when Eric Paulson first came, but I think it was it might have been mid nineties that he used. So he used to come over regularly to to the UK. Then I believe he's still coming over now. I think somewhere in, near Wigan, I think he still might come over every now and again. Podcast, Roger. He's still in touch with him. No, no, I've not. I've not seen him. Since. I went to LA in '99 or 2000, so I went to the uh, in El Santo Academy there, and Eric Poulton was teaching there. So I think that's the last time. That's the last time I'd seen him in in uh, '99 or 2000. Yeah. Oh, and um, Professor, back then, like in the early mid '90s, did you guys have a concept of like how vast jiu-jitsu is, or did you think, oh, there's like these 20, 30 moves you can do? Um, no I, uh, no, I remember get, I got to a point because it was a limited group. I got to a point where I thought, well, I kind of, I know most of the things that, you know, that you need to know as in, I know how to do it. And, you know, a few different things. I'm like, it's kind of it. You just got to get a little bit better. And then obviously as time goes on, you start, you start getting better yourself. And then it's, it's more like the more, you know, the more you realize that you don't know. And that's just been going on and on for years. Whereas I do remember a point where, it was probably 25 years ago where I thought, you know what, I'm getting to grips with this now. I kind of, I know what I need to do, you know, and that kind of goes on for forever. But it was fun times back then because we, we were still putting it together. It was all based a, a bit more around like kind of mixed martial arts and and it wasn't just grappling we were doing then. So I'd, I'd done competitions back in 94 and 95 where you could kind of slap and punch to the head, tackle to the floor and then, uh, and do submissions. So I remember doing, so obviously your memory goes, but I've got videos of doing kind of triangles and Americanas back in kind of 95, I think it is the videos from. So, wow. What year was it that? Was it Rob Drysdale was talking about? We had Rob Drysdale on the podcast talking about like when triangles first kind of came out because a lot of people didn't know about them. When, when oh, yeah, he was saying like... a similar time, right? He was interviewing Carlos Gracie Jr. And he was saying yeah. that he didn't, like Carlos didn't, didn't learn the triangle till he was like already a purple belt or something yeah, like in the 70s <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah but obviously it's, it, i don't know i don't know the history of it but i guess in i don't know when it came into effect in judo but i definitely i've definitely had judo books from the 90s with you know yeah. with, with triangles in it so i guess it must be way way before then i think yeah um when, what was it like kind of going in well actually i'll ask you first what did you have a like a, like a a humbling moment in jiu-jitsu where it's like, you know, that first time someone like really much smaller than you kind of 
rolls you up and it's like how the hell did this happen and like and it got you hooked or uh, when was when was that for you or did it happen or yeah i think I, I was hooked kind of way before then but i remember when when i first arrived in brazil i'd probably been a blue belt uh i'd probably been a blue belt a few months and i remember rolling with i i already knew what jiu-jitsu was and i knew that you know someone a lot smaller you know could tie you in knots easily but i just i remember rolling with a, a green belt uh, when I just arrived in Brazil and we must, I don't know, we might have had a five or 10 minute roll. I remember getting arm locked twice off this 15 year old green belt. But don't forget, I'd been training since, I'd been training like nine years then grappling. <laughs> and I was and then, uh, I think it was the, it was either that year or the year after he won the, he won the, the juvenile world championships, you know? Yeah. So it made me yeah. feel a tiny bit better. <laughs> uh, he was just, he was very good. You know, he was 15 years old. Uh, but most green belts are. If you meet a green belt in Brazil, uh, they're going to be uh, a very high level. Yeah, yeah I, I, I was, um, did we break down this match? I think we might have broke down a match. We did a, in lockdown, obviously, to keep the members happy, we were doing kind of fight breakdowns and stuff. And we had a match on um, about the close guard and Braulio was commentating. And he was talking about, I can't remember the fighter, but he was saying, oh, the, the player, but he was saying, he was tapping out black belts as a yellow belt back in Brazil. And there must be a lot of those yeah, yeah, Brazilians yeah. out there that just absolute killers, man. Been doing it since they were like one. Yeah. It was that the guy actually caught me from close guard. Like he was trying to like flower sweep me and then I'm trying to bait and then he just switched to the arm and he was slick. He was just, he was good. But I've seen it before where like there's a, you know, a 15 year old and he'll like fly an arm bar a black belt and then, the black belt will, afterwards, the black belt will like smash him. <laughs> but, you know, like, but at the t you know, you just get caught with like, you might have a hand in the collar too far and, and the kid, obviously the black belt's not going crazy on the, cause he's a 15 year old kid. And then all of a sudden they'll get caught and then, you know, there's a bit of payback then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was going to ask you, what was it like to walk into uh, Mauricio's Academy, the original Gracie Baja UK for the first time? And do you remember meeting Mauricio for the first time, what that was like? Uh, yeah, I, I remember it, it was a, there was, it was a, an old church hall and I can't, it was either, it might have been 1999 then. So afterwards they went to a place called the Custard Factory, but before that the church hall, I just remember it was in winter, it was freezing cold there. Like the roof was falling through. I'm sure I had, I might have even been training with like gloves on just to keep my fingers, you know, so you could grip because it was, uh, I think there was a hole in the roof there, but uh, it, it was exciting because it was something new. Not not many people had heard of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu then, so I was living in Ipswich at the time, so I'd drive over. On a Saturday, I'd drive all the way over from Ipswich to Birmingham just to train. And some of the some of the guys there had, had stayed, because they knew I'd driven over, they'd stay behind. So sometimes, I, I don't know, we'd, we'd just stay for hours rolling. So I might have been four hours we'd spar. <laughs> you know because I knew I couldn't train in the week in the week I was doing judo in Ipswich so on Saturdays I wanted to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu so I'd drive all the way over and then uh, uh, I'd get as much training as I could on the Saturday because I knew I had a, a few days to recover but I, I always remember Mr. he'd always remember my name and I, I don't know if he's the same with everyone but you know and he has lots of different students and because I wasn't there full time at the start I was just I was kind of popping in and then I remember going back in and he'd always, he'd, I remember him saying, hi, Steve. And I'd be, I think he was talking to someone else and I'd look behind me. And then, and it was impressive. You feel a lot more welcome as well. If you, when you, when you come in and you're a bit nervous, it's a new gym. It's like, you know, some, what, uh, that probably the highest grade at the time in, in Europe. Uh, and you'd feel a bit nervous being around. And then when someone remembers your name, you just feel more at home. And yeah, it was good time in Birmingham. Then it was a good time. So it was kind of the start of one of the, uh, the main clubs, obviously in the UK, then the, the start of kind of Gracie Baja uh, in the UK. And it, yeah, it was exciting times. And that's a, that's a two or three hour drive to, from Ipswich to Birmingham. Yeah, it was like it was. It was on the Saturday, so there was no traffic, but it was it was just over two hours, I think. So yeah. So yeah. I mean, again, we've, we've spoke about this. I mean, a lot of obviously a lot of our members. We're in a, a residential area here in North Leeds, and a lot of our members just walk from the front door into the academy, like, and they don't really know how lucky they are. We all had to travel to find information. I had to have to drive oh, yeah. down to see Victor, um, a guy, a very good friend of mine, Lewis Matthews, who used to come and train oh, yeah. with you. 
Yeah, no uh, yeah, exactly. So me and Lewis kind of came up together as best mates. And I know he used to drive all the way from Moulton out in East Yorkshire, out to Leeds, and then to Manchester to train with you to get some more information and stuff. So people used to do that back then. It doesn't happen now. Um, and oh, you know, God, when I, you don't know how lucky you are. And it feels like I'm a granddad saying, look, you've got everything on a plate here. There's like, you know, in every town now, there's good quality jiu-jitsu and people don't have to travel, you know. They don't have to travel as much, but there was something exciting about back in the day, though, because like you felt like you're getting something like new, and not many people knew about it, and you know, so there was a buzz to learning this kind of this new martial art that had come over. You know, you're a, you're a judo um, academy and friends uh, that you were training with the Nips. Which did, did you, could could you not convince them to try and do lots of groundwork with you? No, there was. I remember in Ipswich there was two there was two black belts who ran the club there, and one of the one of the black belts did do a lot of groundwork. So he was he was uh, very good on the ground. Oh, nice. But the, the style ends up a little bit different. Obviously, because of the rule set, it changes the the game a, a bit. Right. So, uh, so it's kind of it's different rolling with people who are just rolling for judo-based rules compared to people who are rolling for Brazilian jiu-jitsu rules. Mm, right. So um, when was it that you were you're like, oh, I'm going to go over to Brazil to to do this? Uh, I'd, well, I'd left I'd left Ipswich and moved to Birmingham, and then uh, was that just to kind of be closer to training? Yeah, yeah, just for training. So I wow. sort of quit my job in Ipswich, moved to Birmingham to train. And then, uh, and just got like a, a part-time job in Birmingham just to have enough money to live. Uh, there were six of us who all trained together, including uh, who had left uh, the UK then. So there was a brown belt teaching in in Birmingham, a Brazilian brown belt. So we were all living in the same house. So there were six of us living in the same house. All the rooms were rented individually, but we just made it so everyone was in the, the same place. Awesome. And uh, so, so we had like the front room matted. Obviously, we had the gym as well. So we'd be training like twice a day at the gym, but then for some reason we'd matted the living room as well. This is like uh, the uh, the old school. This is absolutely UK awesome, Daisy Fresh. Yeah, room. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so at the time, like the 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 best guys at the gym were all living in the in this this house with six of us there, you know, which was great just for information. You know, you basically just live in the jiu-jitsu lifestyle, and you know, anytime day or night, if you had a question, you could just kind of fire the question off or train or whatever. So. Uh, so we did that for it must have been s- at least six months we were doing that the brown belt ended up going back to Brazil so we, there was kind of no instructor then at, at Gracie Battle Birmingham obviously there, there's sorry there, there's blue belts there who were good level blue belts who had very solid basics off Mauricio but because I was kind of dedicated my whole life to doing this then I kind of you know uh, my goal was to train kind of where there was a lot more black belts. So then it just made sense. And obviously I didn't know how it was going to pan out. So I had no idea that it was going to explode in the UK and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was going to be everywhere. And I didn't know Braulio was eventually going to come over and everything else. So I ended up leaving uh, in early 2000. Uh, I'd left Birmingham and then moved over to Brazil to train. Wow. Some commitment that. Yeah. And and did you have a plan? Like what was the plan? You were just gonna like rock up to an academy and say, hey, I, I want to train, or what, what was yeah, the Yeah, so when when I first went over, because uh I'd kind of planned this anyway, and then the, the brown belt who was teaching there had gone back to Brazil. So I went to his gym in Sao Paulo or his instructor's gym in Sao Paulo, uh in a place called Campinas, and I stayed there for uh, a few months training. And then, uh, but I still wanted to go to Rio to the main kind of Gracie Bar in Rio. It was it just made sense because I'd started with Mauricio and and it was a uh, and there was a big gym and I'd already met people from uh, Gracie Bar. It made sense just to go to the main gym in Rio. So in two thousand, uh, moved over to Rio. Then uh, got a place to stay. Luckily, we found like a little uh, kind of hostel. But in the hostel, lots of. It wasn't really a traveller's hostel. It wasn't far from the gym. I think I was paying £70 a month for accommodation, which was like dirt cheap. Uh, and then then started training full-time at, at Gracie Barha, in, in the main Gracie Barha, like Matrix headquarters. Wow. Well, I definitely want to ask you a lot about that. But uh, when you when you first got there, was there much of a culture shock for you going to Brazil, or were you quite ready for it? Yeah, uh, I kind of... I had a... Uh, 
I, I had a clue because obviously I'd already spoke to Monsieur about it and I spoke to the other brown belt who was there about like the, you know, what it's like living in Brazil. But it's like anything, it's sometimes it's better just to go over, immerse yourself. I still had a couple of contacts, so I wasn't going out with not knowing anyone. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as I arrived there, there was a couple of other people from, uh, there's a guy from Canada there, another guy from uh, America. So you soon, you, you soon meet other people who can kind of help you out a little bit as well. Uh, so then it was just a slow process and of learning, learning Portuguese and, getting used to the Brazilian culture. I managed to get a job there teaching English as a second language. Uh, and then you kind of moved out of the hostel, managed to get an apartment. And then uh, and then I, I kind of settled. It was like I was settled in Rio and li- I could have literally stayed there permanently forever. You know. How long did it take you to learn Portuguese? Uh, I don't, after, I'd, I'd learned a tiny bit before I went, but just bait like days of the week, a few numbers and... And then when I'd got there, it was okay speaking after uh, like six months or so. It would, you, you could kind of get away speaking one-to-one with someone. But obviously, it's completely different. If you go to a restaurant and there's music playing in the background and there's 10 people around the table and everyone's the, – the Brazilians love to talk over each other. So everyone's kind of fighting <laughs> to talk. And, and then it's hard work, you know, to, you know, and then you'd be sat around the table and someone would go, Steve, you're a, you're a bit quiet tonight. And I'm like, Listen, I'm not, I'm not. you know, by the time you've figured out what the conversation's about and then you figure out what okay. you're going to say, and the conversation has moved on and people are like, why aren't you saying anything? I'm like, I'm literally trying to just keep up with what's going on. You know? My brain's going. <laughs> and it gives you a headache. You end up with a headache just trying to, but obviously over time that, that gets better and better over time. And, uh, and I was still socialising with, there was still lots of people who'd come over and train. When I'd rented the apartment, I was renting rooms out to other people who had come over to train jiu-jitsu. So I was still spending, I, it wasn't just Brazilians I was hanging out with. So I was speaking English part of the, you know, probably half of the time and speaking Portuguese the other half of the time. And Steve, sorry, mate, I don't want to date you here, but how old were you then when you when you went out there? Uh, uh, 25. Yeah, wow, I, was okay. I was 25 when I went out and then I stayed there for eight years. Was there anyone back home kind of telling you, like, Steve, what you're doing? You need to get a job and settle down, mate. What, what? It, 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 every time I came back, because I don't know when, at some point, house prices started to boom in the UK, but obviously I wasn't here. But I don't know if that was in the early 2000s, was it? Mid, yeah. Mid-2000s, mate, yeah, because I bought my first house in 2001 for dirt cheap, but mid-2000s yeah, yeah. you start to go. Yeah, so I remember then I was coming back and everyone's like, oh, I'm glad I bought a house then because prices have boomed and people are talking about pensions and how this, you know, and I'm thinking, life's good, but I have nothing, you know. Yeah. But then but then I, I just, uh, if life's good, I, th- I think it doesn't matter. No, nothing else matters. If you actually, you speak to so many people who've got so many problems. And when I was in Brazil and I was enjoying my life there, I always thought, you know what, even if I have to, if you had a planned retirement for 60, then I'd be like, I prefer to spend eight years in Brazil and I'll retire when I'm 68 and I'll work, you know, if I need to work longer in the future, I will do. But while I was 25, I thought I may as well, I was still working in Brazil, but I was just making enough money to live on. But that's all I needed, you know. That's, so, that's, that, that, that's worth pausing on there because I think that's really profound what you've just said. Yeah, a lot of people could learn a lot from that. I think a lot of people are ground down in jobs that they don't particularly enjoy. And they're kind of on this hamster wheel aiming for 60, like you say. Actually, there's some real strength and power in trying to say no to that and following your dreams and your passions like you did. So really, really strong message that, Steve. Thanks for that. I think that's the same with the retirement. Everyone looks at this point and they look forward to this future point. And then when they retire, they're like, you know, if you want to do sport, usually your body's a little bit, you know, if you wanted to do jiu-jitsu, you're not going to, Wait till you're 60 to do jiu-jitsu. That you know, starting out as a white belt is doable, but it's it's going to be it's going to be tough when you're starting later as well, and just your whole body, your health, and everything else. So I thought, if you're going to enjoy, I just thought, if I'm 25, I'll enjoy a big chunk of my life now, and I'll do, you know, and you can always deal with the rest later. Things always, you know, things will fall into place if you're motivated enough to do things. But uh, but obviously, I was still working in Brazil. I just wasn't. Uh, I'd literally work enough hours just to get enough money so I could pay the gym, you know, maybe go out one night on the weekend and then have enough money to, to live and eat, you know? For sure. Yeah. 
Tell me about um, walking into Gracie Baja HQ for the first time and your first session, if you remember, of course. I can't even remember my first set. You know, okay. it's all gone a bit blurred now, so I don't even remember. I don't remember the first day I walked into the to the main Gracie Baja. But uh, I, I did have a friend there from... Uh, there was an English friend as well who was over at the time. Uh, but the gym, even the gym in Brazil now, it's changed a lot, kind of. Even the time I was there, they'd up, upgraded the gym a lot there. But I, obviously, I remember bit, even going in training, I remember being nervous and you're, you're, you're a foreigner, you're in a different country. Obviously, everyone's speaking a different language. I could speak a little bit of Portuguese, you know, and literally the mat would be... The, I remember lots of sessions, there was no white belts there. So I was already a blue belt, but there was literally no white belt in the class. And there might have been, I don't know, there might have been 80 people on the mat or something. And there was, wow. and it was all, maybe half of the people were black belts. And then, you know, lots of brown belts, purple belts, blue belts, and then no white belts. So even though I was a blue belt in 2000, I was still at the bottom. Of, you're kind of at the bottom of the food chain, you know? And then yeah, even from grab, the top in the UK. To the yeah. bottom of Brazil. Yeah. And then even if you grab a, a green belt, that's not going to help you because they're probably purple belt standards. So, <laughs> uh, but it, it was good. It would have actually been better probably if there would have been more white belts just to try stuff. So when I first got there, I remember just having private lessons on defending because I thought it kind of makes sense when you start. I'm always going to be in a bad position with everyone. So I thought, if nothing else, and then you've got something to focus on. You know, if I just work escapes first, just because of that environment I was in. And then obviously over the years, as you kind of work your way up through the belts and stuff, then it kind of, it was probably more advantageous when I was a, a purple or brown belt there, because then I had, I had people who you kind of better than in the gym, the, the lower grade, you have people your level. And then obviously uh, there's loads of like higher grades there who are just, you know, they're always going to be beating you. Must have been some really big names uh, of Gracie Baja there at that time, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously, uh, Roger Gracie was there training. Uh, Pedro Pano was there training. There was just there's a literally a list. That there's people that you've probably never heard of who are like, you know, they, they might not be world champions, but they're not. You know, the level is still up there where they would be. You know, most people. You know, what was it like learning from um, Carlos Gracie Jr. and what was it like to roll with him back then? It was good when I, he'd always roll. I actually rolled with him a, a lot. So we'd do, uh, he'd, we'd always do 10 minute rounds there at the great because that was the time for like adult black belt, uh, uh, you know, competitions. But whenever I rolled with Carlinhos, it was always we'd roll for 10 minutes and he'd always say, Steve, do you want, do you want to carry on? And you could never say no. So then you'd, you'd be like, even if you're exhausted, you might have rolled before, you might have been rolling for 50 minutes and then you roll with him and he and he goes do you want to carry on and so you always say yes so he'd always roll for a lot you know yeah it's very rare that I think I've rolled with him for 10 minutes it's always like a 20 minute roll or a 30 minute roll you know and he just knew that eventually you're going to mess up you know and it's just okay you're like you do all right and you think I'm doing all right then and then as the time goes on it was just a kind of a, a waiting game. And he's like, and I'm sure in his head he thought, Steve's going to mess up any second now and then I'm going to catch him, you know? I would uh, say that as a massive compliment, Steve, that he actually wanted to keep training with you with all those people there. And he must have been doing something right for the for the main man to want to spend time with you in a role. That, that says a yeah, lot about your position, I think. At the start, it was weird because I, I'd always, you know, because you, you, you're kind of respectful. So probably when the first time I rolled in, but I'd have been a lower grade then I remember you know when you end up going too light and you like you, you don't want to do anything even though they're way way better than you you kind of you want to be respectful but then because I've trained with him a lot it got to a level where it was nice because I was actually trying to beat him you know not not being a dick but just I would actually spar you know like you'd spar properly like I, I wanted to I wasn't giving him anything I would literally be trying to uh, you know, like have a, a competitive role, you know, but which was good because then you see someone's level, whereas you don't see that level. If if I'm just trying to be all respectful and not do anything, you know, uh, then you don't realise someone's level. But then it's when you actually, you think, right, um, you know, it's because once you've got rapport with someone, it's a bit different. I would never do that if it was a, if I was rolling with someone, you know, who I'd never met before, who was like, you know, a much higher grade, especially back then. I'd always be, you'd always train light, but I ended up, it was really good because it got to the point where I could actually try 
but obviously you still don't get very far. <laughs> that was my next question. That was the obvious question, right? right. And did did you? No, it's just it's just tough. But obviously he's he's not going. It was just, we ended up just having good roles where it's like you both. He's not going, you know, full out because obviously he's way better than me. So uh, it ends up doing where you're doing like a, a 80 percent role. But I don't know that maybe that's why he picked me out to spar with a lot because it was you know you have a, a good role. But don't forget, I'm twenty years younger than him as well. You know. Uh, which didn't, still didn't help me that much. <laughs> but it's only now when I get older, and if I think if I'm rolling with someone who's 20 years younger than me now, they've got quite a bit of, you know, in my head I'm thinking, this guy's 20 years younger than me now, you know, and that is a massive advantage when you're, you know, you know as you get older. So. No, I know how that feels, mate, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, well what was the, what was the class structure like? Was it mainly just rolling, or would he teach a lot? What's, what's uh, yeah, when, when I was when I first went over there, Marcio Fetosa taught a lot of the classes there. Who was like the the main guy? He was multiple time world champion. You know, very good instructor. Uh, so he would teach some of the classes, and then sometimes uh, Carlos Gracie Junior would teach some of the classes there. But over the over the eight year period is there, it varied a little bit because. That at the start, I think they did more of the classes, but then obviously they started, I don't know what year it was, maybe 2003 or four. I think things started to open up in uh, America. So then they weren't there all the time. So, and the class structure uh, changed a little bit, but it didn't matter to me so much. I was, I'd do, if I wanted more technique, I could always do private lessons with people. And then, uh, and the sparring was always the main bit. So I remember from, I, I, maybe from half six or 7 p.m. in the evening, it was just 10-minute rounds until there was no one left on the map. Oh, wow. So it wasn't, it wasn't, they didn't have set classes. So I think that if I remember rightly, you go in at six o'clock, there might be a warm-up, there might not be, and then they'd do a little bit of technique for a bit. And then maybe, I don't know, maybe at quarter to seven, say, the 10-minute rounds would start, but some people would turn up at all different times. So some people would turn up at seven o'clock, some people turn up at half seven, eight o'clock. So you could literally just keep doing 10 minute rounds until, I don't know, you know, maybe 9.30 or something, you know. So it's, it's good for flexibility then, but, but obviously it doesn't really work as a business model. You know, if you're running a school and you want different classes for beginners classes and everything else, that's probably not the way things work now. But it's great if you're a purple belt, say, and you, you know, and you, do, you, you don't want to drill as many techniques, you know, like for hours. So you just, you, you want to, you might be at that point where you just want to roll, you know, and get that mat timing. So it was absolutely, it was brilliant for that. Yeah. Do you have any um, particular days from that time that, that like, really stand out in your memory? Like, oh, these are days I'm going to remember for like the rest of my life kind of thing? Uh, there was a few, I can't remember what I've talked about on the, the other podcast. I remember, uh, I remember Henzo coming in one day to the gym and, uh, he brought like some breeze blocks in and a baseball bat. And I remember, so he put the whole class stops. It's like, you know, imagine it's like 7 p.m. and everyone's rolling, everyone's training. There's competitions coming up. Henzo walks in, the whole place stops and everyone's surrounded. Then Henzo brings his baseball bat in and, uh, and then he kicks his shin through the baseball bat yeah, and smashes the baseball bat in half. And then he, he, he gets another one and he says, right, who's, who's going to do it, you know? And, uh, and, and I was like, this is nuts, you know? This might have been back in 2000. It might have been like 2002 or something. It was uh, like earlier on, it might have been nearly 20 years ago. And then, uh, so everyone's a bit wary of doing it. And then I remember Roger stood up to do it. But we had the, the in Brazil, they have a team championships. And I think the team championships were coming up at that time. So Roger stands up to kick through this baseball bat. And then Carlos Gracie Jr. is like, what are you doing? The, the, the team championships are coming up next week. We don't want you, you know, breaking your leg. Well, you don't want you breaking your leg anyway, you know. And then Henzo must have done something where, I don't know if the bat was oval shaped or not, you know, so he tweaks it. So you end up kicking through the thin part than the thick part. And because it was Roger, he kind of tweaked the baseball bat a bit. And I think Roger did come up kicked it and like and you know and snapped the baseball bat in half but but Henzo was obviously tweaking the baseball bat so you've got a thicker part of it and someone comes up and they're gonna bust I don't know bust the leg but uh yeah it was all good fun yeah, yeah. uh but there's there's far you know 
I think every time I speak to one, I remember something different or a different memory comes up from kind of back in the day, you know, which is good. Sure. What was it, what was it that um, made you want, want to leave? Uh, I think I just, well, I, I got my black belt in January 2007. Yeah. And then, uh, which was, was, it was always kind of not specific goal to, I want to get my black belt and leave, but obviously, by the time when I got my brown belt, I thought it's stupid to leave kind of before I get my black belt when I was already set up there. I was living there. I had a job there, an apartment, and everything was was going well there. So I thought there's no point leaving before I get my black belt. So I got my black belt in January 2007, and then I thought I want to compete a bit as, as a black belt. Uh, so, so that year, I kind of hit the competitions as a black belt, so it was cool. I remember my first competition at black belt, it was a state championships and I think there was eight people in the category and I managed to get to the final of my first competition as black belt, which is nice because even though you get your black belt, you all, there's always doubts like, because there was, there was brown belts in the academy who I sure was, were smashing me, you know? So you get your black belt and you're like, but there's other people who are, who are better, you know? And uh, so it was nice to get to the final. I still remember there was three people. I think they just started the three referees Oh, sorry, the two corner people and the, the referee. So, and it was, I think it was only for black belt finals or something. So I remember just, it's weird things sticking in your head. I remember having three referees and I was just excited that there was kind of three referees on, on the mat, you know. Uh, but unfortunately, the guy in the final was, was, was good. And so, so I lost the final, but I was just happy to kind of, you know, that I got to the final in my first, first comp at black belt. So, so I ended up staying kind of just over a year after getting my black belt, just to, to compete a lot more and to carry on training at black belt, as, as a black belt, really. And then uh, I think I was at a crossroads where if I didn't leave Brazil, I felt like I was going to stay there forever. I needed to make a decision because I didn't want to teach English forever. Obviously, you can't open a... Well, you can, but it's a lot more difficult opening a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gym if you're in Rio and there's so many high-level guys there. It's, you know... Uh, I'm sure it's doable, but you've got a lot of competition there. Uh, so it was in March 2008. So even it's like over a year after getting a lap belt, I decided to move back to the UK. Uh, it just made sense, and I got a regular job here, full time job as a doing as a software engineer in the UK. And then I started teaching uh, in 2008. Yeah. But I was just teaching part time, you know, like three evenings a week. Uh, and then it just gradually grew and grew uh, from there. But I just thought I'd, I'd kind of done my time in Brazil. I loved it there. And, you know, it was a difficult decision to leave, but uh, it was more to do with work and everything else. And, you know, I didn't want to teach. I'd been teaching English six years, so I didn't want to carry on doing that any longer. You know? Right. You, uh, you struggled to get your hands on, on a black belt, right? Once you got promoted, like you couldn't uh, find actual. Oh, yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't. I don't know what was happening. So, but they had shops. There's a, there's a, in Baja, in the area, there's a big shopping center there and they had the shops there. I remember going to the Atama shop and there was no black belts anywhere. So, my, my first black belt, I actually, and I was still wearing a brown belt in the gym. And so then people, it was like three weeks later and people were saying, look, it's a bit disrespectful. You know, like, not talking about <laughs> And I'm like, I can't, I literally can't find a black belt in, you know. Uh, so I don't know if it was just a, a massive, like, promotions at that time. So my first black belt was actually an A1 black belt that didn't fit me fully. And then uh, an A1 at Tamara, I think it was. And then I managed to get, about a few weeks later, I managed to get an A2 black belt then, which... But I think that black belt's actually. I think I've still I've still got my original. I stopped wearing my original black belt because it was literally it turned white. Wow. Uh, uh, so I've actually got it What's in the that? drawer. <laughs> yeah, so I got it. But then it just looked. Uh, some people said it looked really cool, but then when I'm teaching, it, you know, I've probably been teaching for six years in the UK wearing the same belt. And then when people come into the gym, some people are going, "Oh, that looks really cool." So you got a really old belt. But then I thought it might look a bit better to get a proper black belt. And, you know, and obviously you couldn't compete. Well, I thought, oh, there's no way they'd have let me compete with that belt, you know, after coming back from uh, Brazil because the belt was literally in, in you know, it had gone, I've been in the white belt category, which <laughs> might have helped. <laughs> you ended up, you got, ended up getting mugged a couple of times in Brazil, right? Yeah, I was mugged on the... Uh, well, a few different things happened. Once... 
we're driving back from the the uh, the south side of the city round. It's called Nehemiah round, like the. So there was mountains going up, and then there's a, there's a road that leads down to like rocks leading down to the to the water. So there's only one lane going each way. And I remember driving. We were driving back with an American guy, uh, Wes. He was uh, staying in my house, and I'd like half fallen asleep in the car. It must have been about. Uh, 5 p.m. or something. I don't even know what we've been doing there. And uh, and then the the police sirens were going, and I had told him to go on a different way. When you hear too many police sirens, it's never good. And I remember the, the police car swerved in front of us and pulled over. So we had to stop behind the police car. But there's only two lanes. So then the police are hiding behind our car, firing up the mountain, and then the, there's people on top of the mountain firing down at the police. So we're kind of hid underneath this and we can hear the gunfight and it wasn't hand, it was automatic weapons going off. So I'm literally hiding in the bottom of the car in the front seat, you know. Wes is trying to, he wants to reverse the car. He needs to three-point turn it so we couldn't go forward. But all the traffic on the other side, no one wants to stop. So on this road that's probably 30 mile an hour road, all the cars on the other side of the road are obviously doing about 70 because they're, they're driving past gunfire so they're not going to, leisurely drive past so eventually it must have took him about 30 seconds to three point turn it and then drive back the other way but it was like it was a weird feeling because even though you're not you, you know it's not like you're in a fight where you're getting hurt but because you can hear the gunfire you just know that if one if one of those bullets goes wrong you, you're in trouble you know especially when you can see the police kind of hiding behind our car firing up and it was like that's not oh, never that's 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 yeah uh, and then yeah we basically head, we, we headed back into the south side of the city then but there was no way of getting back to Baja because it just caused chaos in the city so I, we, just, we just went out and got drunk we are just you know it was like a Tuesday night or something and I remember going we need to find a bar and we just you know I think we stayed out for like three you know I was just happy to be alive and I was like I don't go out enough I'm just gonna we're gonna have a, <laughs> a blowout and just I'm just happy to be around you know awesome. uh, yeah when you um when you got back to the UK, when when was the transition from kind of doing your software engineering to full time coach? Yeah, it was just it was gradual. So I'd started as the gym was getting busier. Uh, it was working out all right for a bit, and then as the gym was getting busier, it went, I don't know how long I'd. I think I worked as a software for eight eight years nearly, but I, I'd, I'd cut my hours down. So instead of five days a week, I'd cut it down to four days a week. Then I was working three days a week. And because once you get to know how you're doing your job, obviously you could do a bit of admin. While I was working, I could do some of the club admin, you know, during when I was doing my, my daytime job. But because I was, I was getting my daytime job done, no one really cared. Everyone knew I was running the little business, you know. So it kind of worked out all right, you know, working three days a week and running the gym. But then obviously, I don't know, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu kind of exploded you know, in the last few years. So it got to a point where uh, it was kind of silly to be doing two jobs. I needed to focus more on the gym. Yeah. Right. Uh, I imagine it would have been um, easy for you to have set up a, a Gracie Baja originally. Was there a reason you yeah, wanted there, to split there, there was a Grace. There was already a Gracie Baja Manchester set up, you see. Right. And, and, and at the time, I remember, because I'd, I'd, obviously I'd spoken to Carlos Gracie Jr. In, in Brazil, but nothing, it wasn't as organized as it is now. I don't even think, you know, so to set a gym up, it wasn't it wasn't like it is now with the, all the structures and everything else in place back in 2008. So there was, because there was already a Gracie bar set up there. And when I'd left, I'd not really spoke to him in detail about what to do. So when I come back, I didn't want to tread on their toes by opening, you know, uh, and I don't even know, I can't remember who was running the Gracie. The Gracie Bar Manchester had been around, I think, from 2004, maybe, or I think maybe, I don't know if Legato set it up or... I think Legato set it up, Stephen. I think Lucio Sergio was teaching Yeah, 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 yeah. So I've, kn I've known, obviously, I've known them both in Brazil. But I think when I was still in Brazil, Legato had set up, this is before Lucio Sergio came over, it was Legato had set it up originally... I remember it being in Bolton Wrestling Club back in the day, and uh, and then I don't know if it, I don't know the timelines, but I just remember there was a club already there, so I felt a bit awkward opening another club, you know, like within a few miles, and then it's like what to call the club and everything else, and so uh, and I wanted a bit more flexibility to do my own 
to do my own thing as well. So I just ended up opening, I just called it Manchester Jiu-Jitsu at first. And I actually put a Gracie Bar symbol kind of on the website. But then obviously as things got more structured in Gracie Baja, then obviously I took the symbol, the Gracie Bar symbol off the website just so I'm not like causing any problems with anyone. And uh, uh, and then I did a, a poll just to see what I should call the gym, you know. And then I just ended up, I come up with some horrendous ideas. Someone someone come up with Stealth BJJ. And then I just put, I just did a, uh, a poll and that and Stealth BJJ got the most likes at that time. So I just went with that. So it wasn't even my idea of a name. I just went with kind of what the majority thought. And that was the best of a, a bad bunch, really. <laughs> nice. What, what was the vision for Stealth? Like, what did you want it to be beyond just kind of a jiu-jitsu club? Uh, it was... Uh, I just wanted it at like a place where everyone could come and train. I didn't want it too formal where, uh, so, so even now in the, in the classes now that we, there's lots of open mat times where people could, like I said, in Brazil, you could come in at, at half six and you could just roll till nine o'clock. But obviously it's finding a balance between running a business and having enough people paying, you know, where some people have hourly slots for classes but I, so I still needed that and I still needed, I didn't want to run it like it was running Brazil where there was no beginners classes and everything else. So I was trying to find a balance between a relaxed environment and still having formal classes where, you know, you still got your beginners classes and you still got your technique classes. But at the moment, people can come into the gym at half five in the evening, say, and then there's just, there's because we've got a big space even while the kids' classes are on, we've got a separate room with over 3,000 square foot of mats. So, that, so adults can just come in and roll for like an hour and a half before class. And then, you know, then there's a class seven to late. And then in the evening, you know, uh, then at eight o'clock, there's more rolling as well. So it just gives people that flexibility to, to kind of uh, arrange their own training without having it too formal in a way. Yeah. Right. Nice. For, for you, you're a, a fourth degree black belt, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For you now, what what's the like, most rewarding part of doing jiu-jitsu for you? Uh, rolling, because I've, I've literally had injuries and injuries, and I rolled this morning, and it was great. <laughs> it's just nice to be, you know, like, uh, you, you get little injuries on, you know, there's obviously, I don't, know if it, I don't know if it's partly my age and partly the, the length of time that I've been doing jiu-jitsu. So I don't know if, if someone started when they're 40, I don't know if they've got more kind of uh, leeway with injuries that, you know, or I don't know if it, it builds up over the years. So if you train for like, I don't know, if someone's trained for 40 years, you've got 40 years of jiu-jitsu based injuries and then it, it gets worse. But I still, uh, yeah, I still enjoy rolling, you know. So uh, you forget sometimes if you've had a bit of time off with injury and you still, I still love teaching. I love helping other people. And that's obviously, uh, even though it's, it's my gym, it's still my hobby as well. But then when you get back to rolling, then you realise how much you actually, if you've had like a few months off rolling, then you come back again, you realise that's, you know, that's your passion and that's what you've got you into it, you know. So. Right. If you could go back and ask yourself, uh, sorry, give yourself some advice um, throughout your jiu-jitsu career, you know, white belt all the way through to when you got your black belt or even beyond, um, where, when would you go and, and what advice would you uh, give yourself? Uh, I suppose. I suppose even when going through the grades, there's like no rush to go through the grades as well. That is no, you know. And I did anyway, but I think you know it is nice to compete. You know, uh, uh, kind of every belt, or at least compete. Uh, you know, once when you're going through. But specific advice for myself, I suppose it's to say maybe I'd have done a little bit more strength and conditioning, maybe because when I went to Brazil, I was I was. Because I was there to do jiu-jitsu, uh, I'd kind of focused just on jiu-jitsu. So I wasn't doing any strength and conditioning. I wasn't doing any... I'd do a little bit of extra training before competitions where, you know, I'd be doing uh, a little bit of a, a little bit of strength and conditioning before competitions. I'll be doing sprints, you know, stair sprints and other things. But because I didn't want to tire myself, I didn't want to go to the gym, you know, and lift weights five days a week and then train jiu-jitsu less. So I'd spend probably too much time doing jiu-jitsu and not enough time, you know, even if it's twice a week just doing strength and conditioning in Brazil, I think that might have helped my body a little bit more. It's kind of like an uh, injury prevention. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, to be fair, I did do, I did do, I was doing physiotherapy there. If I got injured, I'd see a proper physio in Brazil, you know. So I was uh, doing physiotherapy for any injuries I had there, but I probably should have, even if it was just two days a week, you know, just had two sessions less of jiu-jitsu and spent two days, you know, doing some kind of functional training for like strength and conditioning, I think. Yeah, I get asked a lot, you know, from, from our students, you know, what, what can I do to make myself better at jiu-jitsu outside of the academy? And my, my answer personally is, well, nothing. You know, you need to roll to become better at jiu-jitsu. You need to come to class. But I think it is important, as you say, if you want to be in jiu-jitsu for a long time, you've got to work on your mobility. You've got to recover well. You've got to lift and be strong because that's just going to keep you going for longer, right? Because every injury you have is three months off the mat. So yeah. you've got to kind of put the put the working consistently to stay on the mat. Would you agree with that, Steve? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. It's just, I understand why I was doing it because I thought, I'm in Brazil and your main purpose of being there is to do jiu-jitsu and obviously you can do strength and conditioning anywhere. So in my head, I was like, well, I'll just, I'll, you know, and at the end of the day, so there's, there's world champions or ex-world champions who have just done jiu-jitsu and they've, and they get away with it, you know. But I think uh, that's probably more the exception. Whereas... I think nowadays, I think most of the athletes are doing some form of strength and conditioning outside of their kind of uh, jiu-jitsu training as well. Yeah, I think Marcelo Garcia famously kind of said, you know, if he had a choice between yeah. kind of working on his stuff, it'd be, in the, be on the mat rolling, right? Yeah, yeah. Which well, doesn't make sense. The game's changed too. I mean, look at, look at the athletes now that are, that are competing at the highest level. They're all in immaculate condition and they're all extremely powerful yeah. and physical and have to be if you want to compete yeah sure yeah yeah um professor uh, what go on sorry oh sorry but even if it's not even for the competition side of it even if it's just literally for longevity to allow your body to you know it's like you said to stop yourself getting injured so you're not having that time off uh because of injuries which is taking you off the mat and at the end of the day you're losing mat time so uh it's probably better to lose that mat time for a little bit every week and then try and stay injury-free. If so many people coming up in jiu-jitsu, their, their goals are either like the next belt level or the black belt, um, but for you, having been a black belt for so long now, what kind of goals do you set yourself? Uh, obviously, I've got goals of like for, for my students to do well, as in uh, not just competition-wise, but just to get people, you know, it's nice when someone comes into the academy and you think there's no way they're going to carry on training. You know, you just you shouldn't do it, but you just think they're probably not going to stay. And then when someone stays, who's who's they're not the natural athlete. They, you know, they might have never exercised before. They might be, you know, uh, a little bit older, and then they stick it, and you see them getting better. Then that's that. You know, sometimes that's more rewarding than the kind of your gifted athlete who comes in, and they're kind of expected to to do well. You know, just seeing everyone else progress in the gym. And they, they're getting better from them, themselves and they're getting their own levels better. Uh, as regard, I've not really got, like, but, uh, I'm kind of happy now. If I can be on the mats and I'm, and I'm rolling, it doesn't even have to be intense rolling. I don't have to be rolling with, like, the best guys in the gym having competition rounds. I'm, just, I'm happy if I'm in them. You know, if I can stay injury-free and, and, and have some, you know, like... Uh, roles where you're going 70, 80% and I'm still training, then that's that's good for me now. I've not really got that, uh, the, the goal of I want to compete and I want to, you know, kind of blast the comp again. Yeah, that might change again if I'm, you know, if I get like a good year or two in training and I, I've kept injury free, then obviously I might think, right, I'm going to go back and I'll do a competition again, but it's not my main goal at the moment, yeah. But I, I always knew that when I was in Brazil, I knew I kind of set myself a goal to compete a lot in Brazil because I knew it would be, it'd get harder when you come back and you've got a gym and you've got other things and other responsibilities. I knew it'd be harder. That's why I tried to get, you know, to compete a lot then just to kind of get it out of your system in a way. But for you and your, your students, do you, do you think a lot about the kind of values that martial arts provides or is it just kind of the training aspect that you enjoy? Uh, it's, it's, both is in, in like in the gym you constantly uh, obviously there's still I'm there to teach people kind of martial arts and how to get better at, at, at jiu-jitsu and stuff but obviously at the gym it's a con hopefully you know like like 
every, everyone at the gym, you know, they're all nice people who I get along with. Who and I, and I hope that even if I hope kind of my personality kind of wears off on other people where uh, that, that kind of whole vibe and environment is making people better people as well. As in, I know it's a bit of a cliche, you know, saying, no, it's not, it's not just about jujitsu, but I think that's just as a, as a role model because you're the one teaching and kind of passing on the techniques of jujitsu. Some people still look up to you. And if you're kind of a, a nice, decent person who's happy to help other people out, then it does influence other people, whether not just the kids, but the adults as well. So if someone comes into the gym and they're being a, a dick, they, they should feel like, look, they're doing something wrong. And then that whole ethos of helping other people out and everything else, hopefully comes across and creates a better training environment for everyone that's more inclusive and, you know, and allows everyone to have that, you know, because everyone's got problems in the day-to-day life and it's nice to come together in the jiu-jitsu world and, you know, and people can forget about the problems, not have problems on the maps, have a nice environment where, you know, obviously there's always some little bits of politics and things going on, but, you know, we, we try and stay out of that as much as possible and have that time so people have got an environment where they can forget all the other problems there's no issues with jiu-jitsu they can come in train make friends you know and then leave hopefully feeling a little bit better yeah absolutely and and for you uh having had so many you know great instruction great instructors what what is it for you that makes someone a, a good instructor or a great instructor uh i think over the years it's hard because lots of People have given, you know, I've trained with so many different people who have shown me, you know, so many great, great things. Uh, uh, I think, like, sometimes some instructors are just good. They, they just connect with you better, you know. So they, they, their way of teaching might just connect with my way of learning. And then you end some people might show more concepts. So they, 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 instead of just techniques, they're, they're showing something that goes across the whole board of jiu-jitsu where, you know, you're not just learning one technique, you learn lots of other things. Some people, you might have a problem in a position and they just might have the perfect solution. Like, I mean, there's positions where there might be 10 things you can do, but only one of those 10 is going to work for me. And then one person might give me that one out of 10 that works for me. And I think they're the best instructor, but it's only because that's what, you know, I might lack flexibility. So I can't do, you know, four of the solutions to the problem. Whereas someone might have a solution that just fits my body type and, you know, so uh, I think a lot of it depends on uh, kind of that connection between student and instructor as well. Amazing. Well, um, I'm kind of going to wrap this up, but with like this last question, if that's okay, Professor. Um, yeah. I was wondering what we usually ask people is um, if you, we've had a great time talking to you, and if you could point us towards someone in the jiu-jitsu community worldwide um they could be well known or not known at all really just as long as they've got an interesting story to share um who would you kind of point us towards oh as in for someone else on your podcast yeah to reach out to uh oh i don't know there's lots of uh i'm trying to think like in brazil i have housemates in brazil who were living with me there and they're black belts now so uh, a few of those live in, in Texas so uh, so it depends what you want obviously there's, there's loads of people in the UK as well who train so there's literally hundreds of people but my housemates in Brazil who live in who who are from America there was a guy called Brandon Mullins who uh, who uh, used to live in my house in Brazil a guy called Wesley Gann a guy called Travis Tuck they're all living in Texas at the moment as far as I know is that Brandon yeah. Mullins under Draclini or Brandon Mullins? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With a mullet, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, so yeah. yeah, it'd be awesome, yeah. So, so yeah, he lived in the house with us for maybe six months, maybe, which was which was great because then we'd, we'd literally just teach each other every day. So every day we'd have, like, uh, we'd train in the house in Brazil and just kind of, and we'd both be drilling, but we'd both have different things to show each other. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it kind of worked out. So obviously, the, the, there's there's so many people I've met over the years. For sure, there three of my housemates who uh, uh, over the years have lived with who are all black belts now. So I'm sure they've got some. They'll have some good stories from Brazil and kind of you know uh, stories from. They're all like earlier black belts as well. So they've all got the black belts of between probably 2004 and five and 2007. Uh, so they should have some good stories. 
Amazing. Well, thanks so much for uh, doing this, Professor. I hope to yeah, uh, meet you in person at some point. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, yeah. Cheers. Thanks a lot for having Good us. Best, buddy. See you soon. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.